In a world full of negative news compounded and inflated by politicians, the media and online trolls, we all need to slow down to stop and just be from time to time, to reconnect and yes, be happy. This week's guest, Shamash Alidina, is that ray of light, that beacon of hope. Author of Mindfulness for Dummies and Relaxation for Dummies, Shamash has many years experience as mindfulness teacher trainer, coach and worldwide speaker, having trained with John Kabat-Zinn, Thich Nhat Hanh and Matteo Ricard. In this wonderful and joyous episode, Shamas talks of kindfulness, the discovery and cultivation of kindness toward your own self and the difference it has on your life, and the Museum of Happiness that he co-founded with Vicky Johnson, helping everyone to find deep happiness through experiential adventure. This may well be the most important podcast you ever listen to. I'm Steve Lazarus, and this is Your London Legacy. Before we dive into the conversation with Shamash Alidina, I just want to let you know that I've got two copies of his books to give away, Mindfulness for Dummies and Relaxation for Dummies, both of which he's kindly signed and inscribed for us. So if you want to grab your copy, free, I'll pay for the postage, Mindfulness for Dummies or Relaxation for Dummies, just give us a shout out on Instagram or Twitter at Your London Legacy and tell us that you want your copy. That's all you need to do. Give us a shout out as well as Shamash Alidina and we'll whiz it over to you as soon as possible. Let's get on with the show. Well, I'm delighted today. <laughs> this is going to be fun. I'm really looking forward to this. But we've been laughing before he's even started, <laughs> which, which, which yeah. is great. And we've only just met about five minutes ago. <laughs> I'm just looking at him now. Uh, Shamash Alidina, welcome to the podcast. Thank you, Steve. It's an Thank absolute you. pleasure to have you here on Your London Legacy. I'm excited to be here. And yeah. to see your smiling face, because <laughs> what you do is all about making people happy. Yeah, well, yes, I'm working right now. I'm smiling. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm going to welcome onto the podcast today, Shamash Alidina. Have I got your name pronounced correctly beautiful yeah better than uh, i can pronounce it no i doubt it <laughs> do you want to try steve lazarus <laughs> steve lazarus well done we've got each other's names absolutely spot on so let me just give you a brief introduction to the listeners who don't know or know you yet shamash alidina i've got you down here is the international best-selling author of mindfulness for dummies series not just one but a series of mindfulness for dummies yeah well yeah uh it's part of the four dummies series so the four dummies series is the most popular reference series in the world actually it's yes. like 250 million books in print amazingly and i've done um i think four books for them wow yeah so we'll, we'll come on a little bit about that and also you've got a nice little gift giveaway gift at the end which we're for our listeners which is great so author of mindfulness for dummies and also author of the mindful way through stress Mm -hmm. as well as a regular speaker and contributor to newspapers, magazines, and forums, and talks, and all over. And very popular podcasts. And very popular podcasts you have too. <laughs> What's the name? And podcasts as well, including this, which of course exactly. is, is going to be the most popular of any podcast Absolutely. you've ever done, I would imagine. Absolutely, but yeah. you have your own podcast as well, I think, don't you? Uh, I do, yeah, yeah. yeah. I don't do it as often as I used to. But does, yeah. does that have a name? Is that trademark? Um, is that just the, no, uh, I think it's, it's just... Um, my podcast if you go to my website yeah no that's fine based in london doing workshops speaker conferences all over the world very big in mindfulness is one of your your key skills that you like to practice and teach and get other people to to practice as well the thing that i love and i really want to talk about as well amongst other things is you founded co-founded the first museum of happiness in in, in london which i think is absolutely wonderful <laughs> and makes me smile just even thinking that it could possibly be such a thing <laughs> yeah the, yeah. the uh, museum of happiness and you also co-founded the zen of zen of business is that mm -hmm. correct mm -hmm. which is mm -hmm. presumably going into businesses and teaching them how to have a happy 
mindful workplace. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, so it's about bringing values into organisations. So the Museum of Happiness is a social enterprise. So the idea is to help social enterprises and other businesses remember that values comes first like yeah you do need to make a profit but if that becomes too much of the focus mm. then you kind of lose your way with the business so so knowing where to start with you is is uh, not easy because you've got so many <laughs> string, strings to your bow so i'm gonna i'm gonna ask you to go back a little bit and go back to your childhood did you have a happy childhood I did actually. Fortunately, I did. Yeah, yeah. We're in North London right now, and I was uh, brought up in North London. In, Snap. In, in Whereabouts for you? North Finchley. Oh, I'm just yeah, around North the corner Finchley. from you, Mill Hill. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And yeah, I um, I walked to my local primary school, Summerside School, and uh, had a really great time because they didn't give us any homework. So <laughs> I never knew what homework was until I went to my secondary school, and so I had a really good time up in up in primary school. I was quite good at the sciences and maths and things, so I enjoyed um, an ego boost of being top of the class and things like that. But uh, the challenge came to me first, my first kind of challenge of my life in a way came when I went to secondary school. So my parents were keen for me to go to a private school. And so I had to have lots of tuition and suddenly I was getting homework and I had to work much harder than I was used to and missing out on playing on my bike with my friends. Uh -huh. And uh, I did manage to get into a, a school uh, in St. Albans, actually. So I had to travel a long way every yes. day. And I didn't really understand all the lessons. The teachers were quite strict. And yeah, there wasn't as much compassion there as I would have liked. And so actually... Yeah, and there's some bullying there as well. So I had a bit of a tough time in my in my it's secondary school. It's a big school. step up, isn't it, from primary to secondary yeah, school? Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's very. It was very different, and uh, and particularly for me because it was such a lovely primary school, and it's so warm and friendly, and and it was more based about on play and relationships and fun and that kind of thing, and that kind of all went out the window with the secondary school. So, so what happened is that I, because of that, I focused my attention a lot on my studies. So you know, being from an Asian background. My parents really pushed for grades to be good and praised me a lot when I did well. So they just focused on that. And I was good at the sciences and maths and I was kind of getting top of the class most of the time or close to it. So this was the this is interesting because this set the pattern for my life because if I was doing well at that time and when I got to doing A-levels and stuff, I did well, got into a good university to study engineering. But then what happened is when it when it was much easy for me to be top of the class at secondary school, suddenly it was much harder. I was at Imperial uh, College and there were students from all over the world, you know, top students in for this particular field. And it became much harder. But I still had this idea in the back of my head that getting good grades is important, being top is important. Sounds really silly now. And uh, Did you have siblings who were also... Yeah, I had a younger brother. Yeah, yeah he was three years younger than me. So you were setting an example for him then at that yeah, time. Yeah, he's probably getting really annoyed. Like, why are you doing this? <laughs> <laughs> but the, the funny thing happened actually in the first or second summer holiday at university when uh, I tried uh, having a job. So it was like an internship type thing where you're doing some work. And I had in the back of my head that, you know, once I get to this office and start working and doing engineering and designing these different cool things, I'm going to be earning money and that's going to make me happy. And so it was kind of an unconscious thing in the back of my head. And I was earning good money. But when I spent that money, I just remember actually being literally on Oxford Street, buying something from one of the shops, one of the some clothes that I really wanted. And that feeling I was expecting, I was building up to getting, that feeling didn't come. And it was in that moment, I can almost imagine it very vividly in that moment, standing in Oxford Street with all these other people shopping, buying stuff, thinking, hang on a minute, people are always saying, you know, earn lots of money, spend the money, and you're going to feel good, feel happy. And I didn't feel that. So I knew there was a sense of emptiness for me. 
And so I didn't really know what to do. So by the time I got to halfway through my second year of uh, university, I was thinking, what should I do? And I was standing on the underground in London, I think it was in South Kensington, and there was a poster and it was for a philosophy class. And it said, uh, it was like a picture of Socrates or something. And it said, the unexamined life is not worth living. I'm like, that sounds like the opposite of chemical engineering. Maybe I should give that a try. Maybe there'll be something there. So, so I went along to that class. That's, and a, that's a hell of a jump from shop, <laughs> shopping in Oxford Street to philosophy <laughs> classes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, it's that, that sense of emptiness that I got in Oxford Street and, and just the whole idea of making money. And, and, and yeah. also, you know, there's that sense of, okay, if you get this, then you'll be happy. So, you know, you get into a good secondary school, then you'll be happy. You get into a good university, then you'll be happy. You get you earn your money. then. So it's always being postponed looking, to the future. Look, yeah, to the future all yeah. the time. Yeah, so I went along to this philosophy class and it was really mind-blowing for me. It was probably very grateful that first session in that philosophy class because it was it lent more towards Eastern philosophy. And they did this amazing diagram. They drew this triangle like a pyramid and they said there's different levels of consciousness. Now, being more of a kind of science background, people had never even mentioned the word consciousness, but obviously consciousness exists. So I thought, yeah, that's that's fine. And then it said at the bottom of the triangle, deep sleep, the lowest level of consciousness. I agreed. Next one was dream state, slightly higher conscious. You're actually aware of some dreaming happening. I'm like, fair enough. And then it said waking state, but not really fully awake. You're kind of half awake, half asleep. You're kind of on autopilot. You're not really conscious. And they said, you know, go on the go on the London Underground and you'll see that kind of half awake, half asleep state, the walking dead type thing. And I was like, yeah, I've definitely seen that where people are present, but they're not really present. They're half there, half not there. And then there was a dotted line and it said the moment of choice. And it says that there's different, they said that there's different exercises you can do, which have been developed for literally thousands of years, more in the East, but also in Western religions and stuff. Try these exercises and you step over from the kind of half awake, half asleep state to higher levels of consciousness. And when you get into these high levels of consciousness state, you become more present, you become more aware. And almost your state of kind of your well-being, your this, this happiness that you're perhaps seeking in the future is actually available in the here and now. It's the present moment that's really magical and a wonderful place to be, not seeking this constant future state that you're going to find happiness or well-being or whatever it is you're, you're seeking. And, you know, in theory, it sounded great. And we did this very simple exercise. Maybe I could guide it later on where we went through all of our different senses. So we went through the sight for a minute, sound, smell, taste, touch. And then they got us to even step back from our thoughts. So they said, okay, you're sitting here. You're aware of thoughts. So if you're aware of thoughts, you cannot be your thoughts. You're the person that's watching them. You're the silent observer, the silent yeah. witness. I thought, Wow. That's actually absolutely true. And then a few minutes later, when we came out of this little reflection exercise, I felt very different. And it was the first time that I, th- I realized that I could actually change my state of you know, body and mind in a few minutes. And so that was kind of a turning point for me because that's when I realized that actually this path of the, almost the habitual half asleep path of you know choosing engineering because of that I had the highest salary on that bit of paper that I saw and and people just trying to be successful but like everyone just, else. They're all just if you like tropes to massage your ego, aren't they? Or, yeah. or not even your own ego, but you know yeah. ego that's mm. been put upon you by others. You're reflecting other people's wishes for you. Yeah, exactly. So yeah, we we we're kind of given these kind of visions or dreams or things mm. that that we should do that will give us the sense of fulfillment 
But I don't think that's ever satisfying as if we can step back and think, you know, imagine there's nobody else around and I was the only person on the planet. What would I do? How would I spend my time? So it's not showing off to anyone else. And that's tuning into our own deepest heart's desire rather than what someone else is putting on us. Yeah, absolutely. I think it's really important. Yeah, there's a fantastic yeah. book um, by a, a stoic author who I love to follow called Ryan Holiday. I don't know if you've read any of his oh, writing. I've heard of him, yeah. Yeah, he's written a fantastic book called Ego as the Enemy. Yeah. It's w well, well worth uh, a read. Okay. Um, but I digress. So you're, you're in getting involved in this philosophical form of study. Yeah. Yeah. Finding out that there's more to life than just, you know, going up the greasy pole <laughs> <laughs> and, exactly. rea and realizing also, I suppose, that we all as humans have the ability to sit back and, and look at ourselves from like from up above almost yeah. and yeah. separate our our ego from ourselves. And that differentiates ourselves, I suppose, from other species, the animal species. Exactly. You, you don't have that capability. Exactly. I think what happens at a certain age, we don't have that sense of separation at all when we're really young and that's why our memories start around i'm guessing you know one and a half or two where there's that sense of separation of me and other and that separation comes from the storytelling part of our brain so our brain is telling us stories about who we are and so so that sense of ego that sense of separation which we do need to be able to function in everyday life uh is something that's generated by the human brain which not to some, not to anywhere near as strong an extent in other animals, and that's kind of useful to a certain extent. But we become fixated on it. We think of it as an absolute truth, and so that's the first state of separation. And then we separate ourselves like into groups and tribes and countries and nations and religions. And so there's constant separation that takes place. But we need to remember that this is actually being generated by our mind. Our, our mind is throwing up thoughts. And we have this idea that just because of the thoughts popped into our head, it must be absolutely 100% true. Yes. But who's to say that? Yeah. So, so anyway, yeah. So the story goes. So from that going to that philosophy class, I got absolutely hooked to it. I was going to all the classes. Uh, you know, within a year or two, I was even teaching some classes there, and they taught a version of mindfulness about being present too. So I started becoming aware of that, and so I was become very disinterested in engineering. I almost quit. A uh, third year, I didn't actually go to any lectures. I just turned up in the afternoon to play cricket with my friends. <laughs> Um, but just about managed to scrape through in my fourth year and um, decided, okay, I really believe in this so much. I would love to teach this to children because I, I thought I was very old, like learning the stuff that I'd learned. I was age 20 at the time. I thought, oh my God, what a waste. I'm such an old man now. <laughs> learning well passed over the hill. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so, so I wish I was much younger when I'd learned this. So I thought it'd be so nice to be able to teach children this, these, these ideas that I'd learned. So they had a school associated with them called St. James School in Twickenham. And uh, and so I did a teacher training for a year, which I just about survived. And thought, okay, I'm going to apply for this one job. If I get this job, then teaching is for me. Otherwise, I'll do something else. But I did get that job to be a science teacher in this school. But in this school, they also did this mindfulness and other stuff. So they had a quiet time at the beginning and the end of the day. There was a pause at the beginning and end of each lesson. The children learned about not just, you know, Humpty Dumpty and stuff, but they learned about right from a young age of five or six Shakespeare and Sanskrit and lots of quality ancient texts and mm. stuff. So it was a great education. That's very unusual to, to yeah. have that sort of period of calm and, and reflection and meditation, mm. I suppose, and yeah. mindfulness. Not many schools 
do that. I think more and more are starting to get that as part of the curriculum. Now it's becoming, yeah, like becoming, mindfulness in schools is becoming a huge thing. Yes. You know, Parliament has have even got a group, the all-party parliamentary group for mindfulness. Yes. And they're thinking about how to roll out mindfulness in schools, hospitals, prisons, and the workplace. And so there's different large research projects on mindfulness yeah. and bringing mindfulness into schools. Yeah. But this was, I think, probably one of the first schools in the country. It started in 1975 to bring the ideas of mindfulness and meditation yeah. to children. And uh, Well, I'm from the... I also practice a form of meditation called transcendental meditation. Yeah. I've fallen off the wagon a bit in recent months. I'm actually mm -hmm. going to a retreat in a, in a, in a few weeks' time to, get, ah. to, to restart my practice. Yeah. And so, I mean like mindfulness by another name i mean yeah. it, it, it's a form of going back into different states of consciousness and becoming you know more relaxed there's so many different benefits and you can yeah. talk about the science behind all the, the yeah. forms of meditation mental health clearly being one of them yeah yeah but, yeah. but tm is shortened title is being practiced in a number of schools there are some specialist tm mm. schools in this country wow and especially in america there's a there's a university dedicated just to the study of transcendental meditation yeah yeah so yeah. the benefits are are absolutely profound from a science point of view and from a, a health point of view yeah yeah and so, we can kind of link that back to the ego stuff we were talking mm. about because of what happens is that the mind is throwing up these thoughts we're telling ourselves these stories and uh, we can talk later about why those stories tend to be quite negative because of it's from a survival perspective, yes. okay? So TM it involves repeating a mantra, uh, a yes. word or a phrase that you're given that you repeat in your mind. And what happens is that rather than your brain telling you these constant stories about who you are and what you need to do and what you have or haven't done, it calms the mind down because it's using this word or this sound to kind of calm the rest of your mind. And so in that state, you can kind of recharge yourself, regenerate yourself and get this these higher states of, of awareness that we talked about. Indeed, yeah. indeed. I, I know they're slightly different, the practices in terms mm. of one's on a mantra, one's on maybe the breath or focusing on the present. Um, mm -hmm. I don't want to make this a lecture into, <laughs> into the differences. Yeah. <laughs> so there you are, you're getting into mindfulness and how does that develop? Because you said you wanted to teach it, but now you're a teacher so what happened, in yeah, a school so, that's practicing it. So I didn't know it was called mindfulness at the time. Mm. So we were doing, you know, cultivating a present moment awareness and doing things in a very mindful way. And we had we also had learned of a different version of this uh, transcendental meditation too. But I also obviously had this science background too, and I was never hundred percent sure: is this really working? Is it a placebo effect? I was always questioning it in the back of my head. So I just typed meditation on Google Scholar, which has got all the news, all the kind of science papers. And this was uh, maybe nineteen ninety-five or something before people really wrote about mindfulness. But all these all these mindfulness papers came up as research papers. I'm like, wow, there's all this stuff on mindfulness, which is being researched, but I wonder if anyone's teaching it in London. And I Googled it and there was like two, two people teaching it in London. So I thought, let me go along to this. I went to it and I thought, this is such a great way to teach people mindfulness and meditation, such a great format to teach it. I should uh, maybe study this a bit more. So I did, you know, in my in the holidays that I had at school, I went to US and I did some trainings there with a guy called John Kabat-Zinn who developed this movement in mindfulness in the West. And then also in Bangor University in Wales, I did a three-year program. You know, it was a part-time program where I could learn more about mindfulness. Wales seems to be the hotbed for uh, meditation because that's where Maharishi went uh, in the 60s, I think. And that? Where, I Bangor. think it's where the... Yeah, well, in Wales. I can't oh, remember Wales. exactly where it was, but where the, that's where the Beatles met, met him. Oh, really? He got heavily involved in meditation. Yeah, yeah, well, it's yeah. beautiful there, actually. Yeah. So, yeah, so I studied that. And so then I started practicing it. And then I thought, okay, I'm going to start teaching this in my spare time. So I started teaching.
renting it uh, in my flat at home in, in southwest London. I was living in Hampton Hill. Thing is that people didn't always turn up. So they they kind of turned up and sometimes they didn't. And it was on this website that you mentioned, meetup, meetup.com. Mm. So there was no meetup doc, meetup for, for mindfulness in London. So I started the first one and they're all coming to my little flat. Um, but they were not really dedicated. So I thought, let me try charging for it. And I, this is, it felt a bit uneasy actually because I'd always learned it as a free as a gift and taught it for mm. free. But I thought, let's just do an experiment. And every single person turned up. And if they didn't, they apologized profusely and they said, please, can we come to the next one? And they seem to even enjoy it more. And I thought, what is going on here? Somehow, people actually giving some money for it made them a much more dedicated. Yeah, basically, and, they're getting value. Yeah, exactly. If it's, if it's free, well, what, what, what value can it be worth? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So they associated the value with the money. So I thought, hang on a minute. If it's better for them to be paying money for this, then maybe I could actually do this as a, as a job. Maybe this could be a secondary income yeah, for me. And so like just school teaching. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, so I started doing one more of these classes, started teaching eight-week courses as well. And um, <clears throat> what happened next is that my I was in the US. I was in New York. I was uh, visiting my brother who was working at there at the time. And I was, I was reading a book called CBT for Dummies, Cognitive Behavior Therapy for Dummies. And I was a bit skeptical about all these dummies this for dummies that for dummies but i'd read a few books on cbt i couldn't really understand them fully so i thought oh, let me just get this book and it's really good it's really well written so i was enjoying this book and my brother was like you're teaching this mindfulness stuff all the time is there a mindfulness for dummies i'm like yeah there must be so i went to google i typed it in and um, there wasn't so then i just went to dummies.com i clicked on contact and i said is there a book called you know why is there not a book called mindfulness for dummies and they invited me for a meeting, which I was surprised about. So I went to this meeting and they said, what is mindfulness? So I explained it. What is meditation? They didn't really know. And they said, well, there seems to be just like three books out on this subject and they seem to be doing well, but it's a little bit of a long shot. But, you know, one thing led to another. They asked me to do a table of contents and they suddenly said, write this book. I'm like, what? You want me to write the book? <laughs> <laughs> do you know a good ghostwriter? <laughs> yeah, exactly. But then, then I thought, hang on a minute, this is for dummies. If, if I can't do this, then he can. <laughs> yeah, the clues in the title. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Buy dummies, for dummies. So let me have a go. So so it was really hard, actually. So you'd never written anything professionally in your no, life before? No, I hadn't. Apart I hadn't. from some homework and letting <laughs> yeah, exactly. you know. So I thought this is, and it was really, and the funny thing was, I spent about a week or two just trying to get the first paragraph because I thought, okay, we start the book with what is mindfulness. That's going to be easy. But then every single book had a different definition of mindfulness. So I thought, I'm never going to finish this book on time. So then I had the idea, let me get the book, How to Write a Book in 60 Days. <laughs> <laughs> that wasn't for dummies that was just for normal people and i got that book and uh that that actually had the solution for me which was to stop this judgmental mind and just to write whatever comes to my head and then the next day to go back and edit it that's the old so, i'm not good enough scenario isn't yeah, it exactly yeah, yeah 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 so so yeah it was a practice in mindfulness in itself to write it well it's a hell of a book i mean yeah 300 and over 300 pages yeah yeah do they help with the formatting of the book or do you just yeah it's very heavily edited yeah. so um they help with the table of contents and then you write the whole thing and then every single word is is edited and you go back again and you write it again So they knew you weren't a, a writer a professional author yeah they, yeah they just say give us your first your, your best shot and we'll have a yeah. look at it i think they, they more choose specialists in different fields rather than writers and mm -hmm. then they do a lot of heavy editing because they've got this particular format but i think they edited it you know really well and it ended up being it was like number two or number three for dummies book 
I think in the world. So it it came out at just at a time where the the subject started to get popular. Mm. So I kind of caught a wave, and so I decided to quit my job as a school teacher. I thought, wow, I've got this book out now on the, on the back People of this. People are paying for my classes. Yeah, yeah fantastic. I'm like, uh, maybe I could just do this full time. Yeah. So then I took the plunge. So I uh, I quit my job as a school teacher. I'd been a school teacher for ten years. So that was that was one of the hardest and best decisions I made. That was back in 2010. Uh-huh and uh, started teaching people mindfulness and it started very very slow just about you know scraping an income and then gradually it grew from there and yeah i'm pleased to say i've been doing it for 10 years now fantastic yeah so in terms of the mindfulness that you teach you do do you do it in a one-to-one session do you do it in group settings yeah how does it work so good question so it started off like that i was (laughs) it's quite funny actually the first story i thought okay i'm gonna get a nice hotel in richmond i'm gonna book the hotel gonna have this eight-week course it's gonna be really nice and plush i'm gonna give leaflets out so printed thousands of leaflets and they stood outside richmond station in the rain giving them out and i remember someone from the from the from the tube station said uh, sorry mate you can't give your leaflets out here you know you, you have to stand in the rain over there i'm like okay so giving these leaflets out all over the place i thought it's going to be a packed session but nobody booked it apart from one person that phoned me and they said no nah, i don't know i don't want to come to this hotel in richmond but if you come to my house teach me one-to-one i'll give you 20 quid every time you come along and teach me i'm like okay you're the only person you're willing to to do it so, yeah, start, so it, it started like that so yeah. teaching one-to-one and was whoever was willing to learn i was willing to share and teach and it started like that and i started running groups and then what happened is i got because it was a book that was being sold not, obviously not just in london all over the world uh so people were contacting me to learn how to teach it they're like oh you teach this mindfulness stuff I would love to learn how to teach it, but you know, I'm not in London. I'm too far away. Can you teach me my phone? Can you come, can I come and come and visit you and teach me one to one how to teach it to others? And so that was seemed to be where the interest was. So I ended up creating a program which trains people to teach mindfulness. Mm-hmm. And that I've been running for many years now. That's became the, the main thing that I do. So rather than teaching mindfulness, I train like coaches, therapists, uh, members of the general public who are really how to change them. Yeah, exactly. So a lot of people have gone through so many difficulties in their life. And one of the things that really helped them is mindfulness. And so they want to be able to share that with others as best they can. And so so if there's an online program that they could do, then they're up for it. Let's take a very quick break just to remind you, if you love the show and would like to get involved, grab some cool stuff, get shout outs on the show, have us create your very own London Legacy show, or you meet up with us in London for a coffee or something stronger, just head over to www.patreon.com forward slash your London Legacy. Okay, let's carry on with the show. So just talk us through a high level what mindfulness is and and the practice of mindfulness. Yeah. And then let's just have a little bit of discussion about the benefits of it and what's, how it can impact you in your life and what yeah. sort of problems it can help you to overcome. Yeah, great question. So first of all, mindfulness, the, the first aspect of it is certainly about being in the here and now, the present moment. So what our minds tend to do is we what we say is time traveling. So like I said earlier, we've got a storytelling mind it's always telling us stories about what's coming up next or what went wrong before and research at harvard found that 47 percent which basically half the time our mind is not focused on what we're doing and so i, I, I can go with that <laughs> I, i'd say <laughs> yeah, higher exactly. and sometimes it's higher <laughs> yeah yeah, yeah maybe even higher by I've now i've heard it called monkey brain you know you yeah, gotta do this exactly. gotta do that gotta do this it's constantly jumping from thought yeah. to thought 
And so we're kind of being hooked by the stories that our mind is telling us. And as I touched on earlier, these stories tend to be more about things that could potentially go wrong. So if we go back from evolutionary times, uh, cavemen and cavewomen, the ones that were very kind of confident, who had thoughts that everything's going to be okay, I'm never going to be eaten by the saber-toothed tiger, they're wandering around in the forest, in the jungle, more likely to be caught. But the ones that were a bit more fearful and a bit more scared and had more worrying type thoughts were much more likely to survive. So those, those were the, the worrying ones were the ones at the back of the cave mating. And so <laughs> they're the ones that survived. <laughs> so, so, so we've ended up in our, from, because of our evolutionary history, most likely stories tend to go to the negative. So what they found in this research by Harvard is that the more present someone is, actually the happier they are because of their mind is not wondering. Because of when the mind wonders, it's more likely to go to worries about the future or rumination about the past and things that have gone wrong. So the first thing about mindfulness is about coming in in the here and now. But it's not just about being in the here and now in the present moment because I could take you know drugs and stuff right now and I could be very in the present moment. I could be playing a computer game here and you know be really in the moment or I could be a sniper and you know, I want to shoot someone from the window here absolutely in the moment but you wouldn't say wow that person that sniper they're just so mindful the way that they, yes. <laughs> they kill that yeah. person yeah. right so it's obviously got qualities to it first of all uh something that i've discovered recently is the importance of a flexibility of attention so sometimes you need to be focused like right now if the listeners listening to the podcast and you know if there's nothing else you need to do there needs to be a focused attention on what we're saying and sometimes your attention needs to be open you're driving your car you're walking down the street the idea is you're not too focused on your phone or what's going on in front of your feet you need to have an open attention so this ability to be flexible in your attention is an important part of mindfulness and then there's certain other qualities like uh we could touch on this more later perhaps but the sense of kindness or compassion so you know if you do notice your mind going to worries about the future or things that have gone wrong in your past rather than focusing on it in a in a judgmental way to yourself this bringing a sense of kindness ah oh, yeah it's just my mind wandering off thinking thoughts as it does and then bringing it back you probably experience this with your tm and stuff yeah. when you're trying to focus on the mantra whatever bringing this friendly friendly attitude to what you do yeah and, and i've you, seen you call that i think you call that kindfulness kindfulness like yeah, that. yeah yeah That's yeah nice yeah so rather it. than mindfulness yeah. yeah so yeah because of people think of mindfulness as just being in the present moment the values are very important and this sense of kindness is is so key to it it's nice to call it kindfulness rather than mm, mindfulness. I like that. Yeah. Um, you should trademark that. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so there's kindness. Then there's uh, the next one, important one is curiosity. So if you look at a young child, like if there's a little baby or young child in here, would not be interested too much in what I'm saying in this microphone, but would be wandering around, looking at the lights, looking at the colors, getting outside the door, probably having a good go at those biscuits in the corner. Very curious, very open, this natural learning mindset. And I think you, you're doing this podcast, you're interviewing all sorts of different people and it's engaging that sense of curiosity in yes. you and that sense of learning. And that's very empowering. It's very, it kind of brings us into the moment and it steps us out of this negative, judgmental storytelling Very true, actually. Mind. I never really thought about it in those terms. But when I'm doing the podcast and with you face-to-face mm. or any other guest, mm. most of whom are fabulously inspiring and in- interesting people, 
I'm not thinking about my day job. I'm not thinking about other things, all, uh, no. other problems that may or may not exist in my life or what I've done yesterday, what I've got to look forward to tomorrow. True. I'm looking you in the eye, hopefully, yeah. and we're having this conversation. Yeah. Uh, so really, that's a form of mindfulness, Absolutely. I'm guessing, isn't it, without Absolutely. even being aware of it? Yeah, that's a really good point. And something that people confuse is the difference between mindfulness and meditation. So at the moment, this is a mindful activity. We're being really present, really open, curious, you know, engaging in the conversation. We're very much in the here and now. And uh, we've got flexibility attention too we'll be able to move our attention hopefully to other places if need be uh so curiosity is a beautiful one it's a lovely one to cultivate but you can also cultivate this for difficult experiences so let's say depression is one of the biggest causes of disability in the world right now so let's say you're feeling sad now most people have this reaction to push it away or to deny it or to distract themselves doing something else but with mindfulness you can actually say ah oh, this is interesting i'm feeling sad today i'm not sure why but rather than running away from it i wonder where i feel it in my body oh that's really interesting i feel it in my stomach and i what color does it have i'm like oh, okay it's got this kind of dark gray color i wonder how long it's gonna last and so it becomes a thing that's coming and going just like i can see the clouds in the sky here they're just coming and going in the same way a mood can have have something interesting that we can learn from rather than classifying something as bad wrong or something we need to get rid of and this is where mindfulness becomes really powerful and that's why the national health service recommend mindfulness for depression specifically so there's the kindness there's the curiosity and the final one is a really really important one and it's hard to use the right word for it so they use they use the word acceptance and acceptance people think of as resignation so uh what i mean by acceptance is a sense of being empowered to like if we go back to that mood the low mood let's say you're not feeling that great and you're feeling low or sad uh the more you can bring a sense of acceptance to it the more you can make space from it learn from it and keep moving forward the more you avoid it, push it away or deny it, the stronger it gets. So it kind of links to that curiosity too. But it's so important. These, these, these mindfulness approaches are sometimes called acceptance-based approaches. Is that accepting, accepting that, for example, I, I've got this thing in my head at the moment. So many people talk about being anxious and having anxiety and like the whole mm -hmm. world is suffering from anxiety. Not depression, yeah. not clinical depression. No. But everything nowadays is I'm anxious. My child's anxious. Yeah. There's a problem with anxiety. Is that not normal as a normal regular emotion that everybody feels and just because it's not a nice emotion to experience exactly doesn't mean that it's a bad experience to have or that it's wrong or that you shouldn't be having it or that you're ill exactly. just as you say accept it is an experience absolutely yeah yeah i mean yeah. We, we talk about this all you know all the time my, myself and my wife who teaches kids and, and supports parents of kids with special needs so anxiety seems to be the new mantra superimposed onto mental health if you like you know down down with spiral of mental health and i don't see it as such I, obviously there's different degrees of anxiety if, it, if it's so overwhelming that it's stopping you live your normal life but just to say you're anxious and i can't cope to me i, I sometimes feel that's a bit of a cop out yeah yeah and i think i think you're right and i think it's just a misunderstanding of it so first of all it's interesting to note that they've been measuring levels of anxiety i'm not sure how they did it but they're doing it in quite robust ways for about 60 70 years and i know that something that about you know in the 1960s people would be classified as having clinical anxiety now it's the norm every day for people yeah. so there are higher levels of anxiety because of all sorts of different reasons we could talk about but having said that i totally agree with you it is an emotion the problem starts 
is when there's a lack of acceptance. And that's when the anxiety can start to spiral down. And we need to be able to educate people in the way how to handle it. They don't know. In fact, a lot of the media would classify it as as wrong or bad. By the way, behind you, there's a beautiful rainbow. <laughs> Got distracted. Oh, wow. wow. Yeah. <laughs> well, we really need to be in the moment to take, take that one in. Well, yeah, yeah. That, that, is, that is stunning. Well, I yeah. have to say, folks, we've got the most amazing view. We're on the fifth floor of this uh, Regis office building in um, in yeah. Southgate, North London, because we're both North Londoners. Mm -hmm. And we've got the most amazing views from here, right over to Canary Wharf, and we can see the Shard. It is a clear day, and we've got this most stunning rainbow forming right ah. behind us. Anyway, we're being distracted we're here. We're, yeah. so <laughs> we're so mindful, but well, well done for spotting that. I'm looking at you, and there's a huge rainbow coming out of your head. Coming out of my head. <laughs> Okay. Well, that would be so, a, yeah. yeah, that would be I something. Thought it was supposed to be a pop gold at the bottom. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, the anxiety. So the problem with anxiety is the actual running away from it. Because of then what happens is that you people become anxious of the anxiety. So then you become more anxious. I'll tell you a story. So this is a real story of a guy called Dr. Stephen Hayes. He was a psychologist. And uh, he uh, was in a, in a university and a couple of professors, they were fighting. And he saw them fighting and he started to feel his heart started to beat faster and faster and faster. And it just kept getting faster and faster. And he was getting very frustrated by this fight. And he was sitting in one corner of the room. The door was on the other corner of the room. So he put his hand up to try and stop it. So these professors look at him and he looks back and he just can't speak. His heart is being so fast. No words come out of his mouth. And he gets very embarrassed by this, but they kind of look at him for about 10 seconds. They're like, what's wrong with him? And they carry on fighting. But what happens is that it starts repeating. So this anxious feeling and the racing heart starts happening in when he's giving his lectures at this university. So he starts using everything he knew in psychology in the 60s to try and reduce that anxiety. So he started challenging his negative thoughts. He started doing relaxation programs. But the relax, none of these things worked. For example, he was doing his work on his desk and he was, he'd say, he'd notice his heart is quite calm. So he'd be saying to himself, okay, good, nice and relaxed, keep breathing. And then his heart would skip a couple of beats and he'd be like, relax, stay relaxed. And the heart would beat faster. And then he'd say it one more time and then his heart would start racing. He'd have like a panic attack. And so no matter what he did and all the different psychology things, you know, he got his students to give lectures. He was playing videos in his lectures rather than giving talks. And his hand was shaking so much to put even the video into the video recorder. And then one day in the middle of the night, he woke up with this huge sweat and he had the aching, you know, his arm was aching, his left arm. He's like, oh my God, this is obviously a heart attack. Heart attack I'm yeah, all the signs of a heart attack. So his mind tells him, Call, he's in the US, so I'm going to call 911. But somehow there's another part of his mind that doesn't do it. He knows he needs to call 911 because he's got all the signs of it. This, is, this wasn't like his other panic attacks, but he just doesn't do it. And then his mind starts imagining what's going to happen. Calling 911, he imagines the ambulance coming, he imagines going to the hospital, he imagines being in the bed, and then he sees the doctor coming up to him, walking in a wet white coat, and he's smiling. And he's like, why is he smiling? And he said, and he says to him, Dr. Hayes, you're not having a heart attack. You just had a panic attack. And this is like hitting rock bottom for him because of he's literally waking up in a panic attack and he's tried so hard to get rid of it. Okay. So what we were talking about avoidance he's using all these different forms of avoidance. And at the rock bottom, he's lying on the floor and he has this, he describes it as a spiritual experience, but it's the thing that we started our podcast on. 
he stepped out of his mind. He suddenly saw there was a part of his mind that was watching the whole thing and that was free of it. And he just finally discovered that actually I've been running away. I was using all these psychology techniques to try and run away from this feeling. But actually, I don't need to do that. I just need to open myself up to it and just do whatever I need to do, whether the anxiety comes or not. And and he knew at that moment that something would transform. And then he ended up developing this whole therapy, which I could talk about later, called acceptance and commitment therapy, which is very much heavily based on mindfulness, but also teaches about this almost spiritual dimension, this transcendent sen- sense of talk about it now. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So... Yeah, so so he had this amazing experience, and he knew that there was something that he had experienced, which psychology didn't didn't really talk much about. And so he did a couple of experiments, and they worked. And normally, you know, the the gold standard of research is called randomized controlled trials. He did a couple of those; they worked. But rather than publishing them, he put them in his drawer, and he says, "No." I know it's working, but I need to know why it's working. So he had to go back into the research of how language works and how cognition works. And he discovered how humans are fundamentally different to animals in the way we, we connect things together. So human beings have this amazing ability of being able to connect anything with anything else. So remember in that story, there's a thing called relaxation-induced panic. He was using a relaxation strategy, but even relaxation can get connected to a state of panic and so can induce it. But if you just pick, just pick two objects here and we'll be able to work out some sort of, just choose two at random. Okay. Bottle okay. of water and, and a pen. Okay. So how is the bottle of water the father of a pen? So there's a, there's a, there's a relationship there. It's quite a difficult relationship. How could the b- bottle of water in some way be the father of that pen? You're asking me? Yeah. I haven't got a clue. <laughs> <laughs> how could one one lead to the other? Wow. How can one lead to the other? I don't know. One quenches your thirst. Yeah. And the other is uh, there for, for working. Yeah. And so, for one example. Would, one would give you some relaxation and respite from the work you're doing. Yeah. There you go. So, in some, some state, in some ways, the water is superior than the pen and uh-huh. we can switch it but you can think of any type of relationship and you can think of any two objects and the human brain can work out a relationship okay so he, he discovered this called thing called relational frame theory so how everything can relate to everything else and so because of our mind works like this because we're like we've got this kind of spider web in our heads to try and think that positive thinking would somehow get rid of negative thinking just doesn't work like that in fact they found that if you're not feeling that great and you try and force positive thoughts on yourself you actually end up feeling worse because of why you know why is somebody going around saying to themselves i'm good enough i'm good enough i'm good enough i'm good enough you think actually there's something wrong there obviously they don't think they're good enough that's why they're doing it right so so he discovered that and so he th- so he found that actually what what the uh, existing therapies were doing were trying to change the negative thoughts to more realistic ones or more positive ones challenging them we found that actually no it's the relationship that's important so if we can learn to step back from our thoughts this this mindful approach but then, then he actually ended up finding six different skills and these six skills create a thing called psychological flexibility and psychological flexibility there's been three thousand studies and according to him and others it's probably the most important skill for well-being and a flourishing life and you know it's something which is quite well known in the psychology field but most people with the general public don't know about this but it's it's all about being able to be present so it's the mindfulness skills but it's also learning to be open so what you talked about your attitude to anxiety is a very healthy one you're open to it if it comes 
you feel it, you allow it to be there. And then the third key set of skills is knowing what your values are and taking action on it. And I'll say you're doing that with this podcast. You know, one of your values, I'm guessing, is about learning and growing and discovering. Yeah, meeting interesting uh, people. Yeah. Yeah, 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 and, yeah. And, and and whilst everybody else is leaving a legacy, I want to leave my own legacy through through the podcast. That's also go. a legacy. Yeah, yeah. yeah. and I'll that journey, and it isn't always an easy one. So you know, when you're doing something you're passionate about, something you believe in, there'll be difficulties, there'll be challenges, there's extra effort, there's money involved, there's all that. But what he's found, what people have found, is that when you make that effort, you get a fulfilling life, you get a meaningful life, and that's that's what happiness really is for me. And that kind of goes back to what we talked about earlier about happiness. It's not about just feeling good it's more about doing good in fact the idea of happiness meaning feeling good is about 100 years old but before then if you go back to you know hundreds or thousands of years it was all about virtue it was all about values it was all about doing something you know like legacy is one thing but doing things that are fulfilling for ourselves and not something that other people are telling us to do not that sense of virtue like you know be a good person but actually what do you believe in like for me it's about curiosity it's about compassion it's about community it's about being playful and fun these are my values yeah and, and living a living a value-centered life yeah based on principles high, higher principles is a stoic it's part of the stoic philosophy of, of okay. centuries ago yeah yeah yeah, yeah so yeah. It, it go it goes back millennia that's the beauty of this yeah. you could do some really hardcore science and come up with the some of the similar findings that they found through you know and what i find interesting about you and also because you're from a science background and you've come the philosophical route and the meditation yeah. route the guy who taught me transcendental meditation mm. james if you're listening james he was, he was <laughs> one of the early guys on the podcast as well was also from a science background ah. and he it was his study of the science and the benefit the scientific benefits of transcendental meditation yeah. that led him to think there's got to be something to this yeah yeah it yeah, leads yeah into the, the the discussions about philosophy and science and consciousness and cosmic consciousness and all these sort of things exactly. and then you get onto well-being and mental health mm. and they're also inextricably inextricably it's easy for me to say <laughs> linked <laughs> but actually i've thought about that actually because I've, I've noticed that pattern as well and i don't think it's so much people interested in science but they're interested in truth yes and so they seek that truth in different Indeed. in different fields and yeah. so it could be from a science or philosophy or religion or but it's a seek mm. is seeking out what what is what's is real what's true. so what can mindfulness basic mindfulness practice assist with according to act it can pretty much help with everything okay if you, if i wiped out your level of uh, ability to be flexibly present what can you do without being conscious there's not much that you can do so the ability to be in the here and now in the present moment helps to improve all sorts of things so you could take everything from you know uh, i know with act for example it's it's helped olympic athletes to get gold medals it's uh, helped businesses to be more successful it's helped people with mental health challenges to overcome them in fact the low levels of psychological flexibility which is linked to mindfulness uh, you can actually predict the chance of people having a mental health challenge and also how long that challenge is going to last from just from from those figures it's used it was initially used for chronic pain interestingly so the story of mindfulness is that dr john kabat-zinn in 1979 he was he created an eight-week program on mindfulness and he did it because of, he had a back issue actually his pain, his back was hurting a lot he went to this buddhist uh, retreat and he found his back problems reduced a lot the pain went down when he was actually feeling the pain which was really strange for him so he created this uh, eight or ten week course where he helped people to be practicing some yoga and also cultivating an awareness of their body and mind and he found that as you became aware of the pain 
because you stop struggling with it and fighting with it, the actual what they call the suffering, which is the extra stuff that your mind comes That's up the with, layer around you put it, on top of it, the big layer yeah. you put on top of it, yeah, that starts to reduce. And then for for the more experienced practitioners, they get they report up to ninety percent reduction in pain. So in terms of the benefits, like if we could go through the different things, like for your physical body, it's associated. I would say, obviously, chronic pain goes down sense of relaxation in your body goes up i think you're better able to cope with stress for example in challenges that come up for you emotionally you have higher levels of emotional intelligence so they've done a lot of uh research on ei emotional intelligence and people's relationships so they're better likely to have a good quality relationship with their partner or friends um interestingly it even impacts us our cells in the level of the genes so at the end of the genes there's caps and aging is associated with how fast that cap wears out. I think they're called telomeres. And people who practice mindfulness, the rate at which that cap wears out slows down. So that's why you see all these monks looking quite young because <laughs> <laughs> they've been practicing mindfulness for such a long time. Uh, so it impacts us on genes level, reduces a thing called inflammation, which has a lot of positive benefits for many different health conditions. Yeah, it's hard to find in, anywhere it doesn't really help, actually. And it's also a very nice, pleasant experience as well, isn't it, yeah. while you're actually in the practice doing it? It can well. be. Interestingly, it's not always. So, no. for example, with something like anxiety, you know, we'd practice mindfulness for anxiety. So people think of it as relaxation, but it's actually different. It's about awareness. So you may feel relaxation or you may feel the anxiety. And so imagine if you're being mindful of anxiety, it's going to make it a more stronger experience, at least at the beginning. So it's not so much about seeking a pleasant experience or unpleasant experience, but it's about relating to it in a different way. And is it important to get the, this into the education system, say, or into children at a young age before they become adults so they can start to practice this from a young age? Yeah. Because there's kids who have problems, shall we say, whether it's anxiety or ADHD or some other sort of... Um, uh, emotional disability is it helpful for them to start practicing from a young age really helpful and really important uh, this is another amazing fact i discovered so if you could not decide where you'd be born on the planet earth but you could only decide the time in which to be born the best time to be born would be right now right now is the highest you know spread of wealth in the world the lowest level lowest chance of you dying of some sort of disease when you're young in terms of physical health this is the best time violence on the planet is at the lowest level it's ever been you wouldn't believe that when you read the newspapers yeah i mean there's obviously hot spots and the news is always yeah. negative and not yeah, yeah, hot yeah. spots around the world yeah 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 but as a as a whole we're at the lowest levels of violence however the worst time to be born right now for mental health challenges is also right now. And it's not just people talking about it. It's not just, oh, you know, they're on social media and you know, they're, they're talking about mental health. Suicide rates for young people are the highest levels they've ever been. So it's a real urgent need to do something to help young people and their mental health. And so mindfulness and ACT and these kind of approaches, they've got good science now or growing science base of their benefits. And so if we can teach young people at an early age of mindfulness, it protects them from, you know, the things that kids can see on their screen now, we didn't have access to that even just a few years ago. And so I don't think it's easy for us to appreciate the challenge of being a young person right now. You can be bullied 24 hours a day 
just with your phone. And even if you don't have the phone, you'd be better for not having it. There's lack of like playtime and physical exercise because of not the actual violence, but the fear of what's going to happen. So there's less, you know, I'd be out on the streets and, you know, just come back anytime and, and my parents would be fine with that. But I'm sure there's a lot more fear now as well and actions on that fear. So anything that we can do right now to help uh, young people with their mental health is great. And are you involved? personally in programs getting this into school or in the curriculum uh, or education not so much not so much but it's something i am going to go into more uh obviously i used to do that a lot and then yeah. i focus more on adults but uh, yeah i feel the need to go back into that and with the work i do together with the museum of happiness we do go into schools from time you to took time the words out of my mouth i wanted <laughs> i wanted to go on to that now because that's the flip side of of negativity yes and negative thoughts and anxiety is being happy because we don't talk about being happy nearly <laughs> enough, do we? We always no. talk about the bad and the negative news and everything's yeah. going, and how can we prevent being negative? But we very seldom talk to each other in social circles about how can we be happy? And what, do you, what are you doing today to be happy? <laughs> you, know, you, you don't say that to people, do you? Yeah. Well, why, why don't yeah. we? What, what's, yeah. what's the downside of being happy? Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> yeah well, there isn't. There isn't, is there? Yeah. Well, there is a happiness trap. I'll talk about that in a sec. But uh, shall I share with you how we started the Museum of yeah, Happiness? Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. Love to hear so about it. So that happened um, three or four years ago. And the story is that I was actually volunteering for this event with the Dalai Lama in, in Germany. And I couldn't understand German. And I was a volunteer. So someone started translating for me. And I asked her what she did. And she said she works at the Museum of Nonsense. I said, I beg your pardon? <laughs> <laughs> Sounds like a sort of Ken Dodd thing. <laughs> yeah. So uh, she said, I'm like, you're joking. She's like, no, no, it's been going for 20 years. My dad started this Museum of Nonsense, the Nonzium. It's near Austria. It's, it's in Austria. It's near Vienna. And she said, we had hundreds of visitors coming, you know, every week on coach loads of them. I'm like, wow, what do you have? She's like, oh, we have things like, you know, uh, soup bowls with like little drains in them and we've got like a bed where it's got the sheep on a, like a machine so you can count the sheep to help you go to sleep at right. night and crazy stuff like that uh, i'm like okay fine and i thought wow if you can have a museum for nonsense you could have a museum for anything and i've just done some i was learning a little bit about laughter and laughter yoga so i was thinking i wonder if there's a museum of laughter i typed it in google it didn't exist but then my friend said oh, what about museum of happiness does that exist i'm like let's have a look and it didn't and actually there's a museum for broken relationships there's oh, a museum there would be, for wouldn't there? <laughs> <laughs> why, doesn't that, why doesn't that surprise me <laughs> exactly and there's a museum for pencils for coal for war yeah all that stuff but there wasn't one for happiness i yeah. thought okay Let's, let's buy the website and let's see what happens. So we did a couple of events. Isn't that where, funny though? You've got to buy the website. Before, <laughs> before you can get a business off the ground, you've got to grab the name, yeah, exactly, grab, grab absolutely. the domain, you get know, that you website. Know how it works. Um, so we got that. And so we started doing two or three events. And then our fourth event, we were going to do it in Spitzerfield's Market. Hang, hang on. You started to do two, <laughs> two or three events. Yeah. What, what, was, what was the... What was the content of the event? And how yeah, so good question. Yeah, so we actually wanted to build a museum of happiness, but we had absolutely no idea in, where in to a, in start. In a physical museum. Yeah, a physical yeah. museum. And we had this design of what it would look like. We'd have a beach on the ground floor. We'd yeah. have a little forest on the first floor and things like that. But we actually had no idea how to do it. And so then one of my friends who gives talks about the science of happiness is like, why don't you just do events and tell people about it, build a, build a community? So we're like, okay. So he came along and did a, did a whole day's talk on the science of happiness. And then we shared some pictures of what a museum of happiness would look like. And people were like, yeah, when can we come? This is a print line. <laughs> we're like, well, we've costed it to a million pounds. So we don't know. It won't be happening anytime soon. 
and then we did another the event was so fun they're like let's do another event so a month or two later we did another one where we had talks on you know on kindness and compassion and well-being and the science of happiness and meditation and yoga and again people people loved it we had like 30 or 40 people and the third one we had 50 or 60 so then my friend had a contact at Spitterfields Market because she used to do some Vietnamese uh, events there. And so we said, hey, can we have a section of the of the market to do an, a pop-up museum of happiness? And they're like, yeah, sure, you can have this corner. January is very quiet. So we decided to do it on what's called Blue Monday. It's supposed to be the most depressing uh, the day, of the most day of the year. Yeah. Yeah. So we thought, why don't we do a, a museum of happiness on the most depressing day of the year? That'd, that be, when, that'd be fun. Excuse me. Isn't that when all your bills come in and yeah, uh, exactly. you're out of cash and all that sort of exactly. stuff? Exactly. Yeah. Although it turns out it's not actually true. It's a holiday company that made it up to sell more holidays. Yeah. Why doesn't that surprise me? <laughs> <laughs> so, so, okay, we thought, okay, let's do Saturday, Sunday, and the Monday, the Blue Monday. And I put it online after, just after Christmas. And I turned my phone off because I was on holiday too. But then when I switched my phone on, I had like 5,000 new emails. I'm like, I'm definitely not that popular. What's going on? And every few seconds, someone was registering a ticket. And what happened is that that Facebook event page had gone viral on Facebook. A million people had seen it all oh around the God. world and it had gone to the maximum number of tickets that people could register, which was, you know, something like five or 6,000 tickets. That's amazing. I'm like, oh my God. So I messaged my, my friend, my co-founder, Vicky, and she's like, oh, that's brilliant. I'm like, you don't understand. We've got thousands of people coming and Spitterfield's Market was even starting to, they were even starting to warn us. Was this a free event? It was a free or yeah, donation-based yeah. event. So I'm like, I think these people are actually going to turn up. We need to set up an organ, you know, a really big event. So we did that, and you know, we started getting all this media attention and different company. You know, we were on Sky News about this, and the BBC breakfast almost turned up in the morning. So we had a lot of media for something like I've shared with you. It was a very small, fun, little, simple idea. Mm. And from that moment, we knew that this has got something. People really want this. They love the idea of this. And so the story that follows from then is that we set up in the back of a cafe, a canvas cafe in, in Shoreditch. She gave us the, the back room and we used to do little, little events to do with well-being and happiness. So we did that for a year. And then we moved into a homeless hostel in Camden. So they gave us like a large ground floor space, but we had to rent it and we couldn't afford it after about a year. But we turned that into a, a mini museum. So we had grass on the floor and we had, you know, a ball pit, which people could jump into. And we had different workshops every day to do with well-being. And there's a whole science to happen. This is positive psychology and mindfulness. So we, te we taught that. And then we had to move out of there. And then another amazing thing happened in that, Facebook were choosing a hundred communities online from the whole world that they wanted to support and give funding to, and they wanted to fly them to the US to give training no for the whole year. <laughs> so I thought, yeah, you know, I just saw, I just filled in. It was a short form, and then we just kept getting through to the next round, the next round, the next round, and then, and then I was on some retreat when we actually got it, and so I came back and they're like, "Have you checked your email?" I'm like, "No, nah, I'm on retreat actually, but thanks for asking." <laughs> <laughs> they're like, "Oh well, you know, you've got it." I'm like, "What do you mean you've got it? You, like, we've got it. You got the funding." So they gave us. $50,000. They flew us to California a couple of times. They gave us lots of coaching throughout the year to continue to grow grow the movement because oh, they, they thought wonderful. it had... Coaching to grow your to, Facebook. To grow the... No, not just the Facebook. No, to actually grow the offline aspect oh, of it. fantastic. So we built... Uh, we kind of 
create lots of materials for a pop-up museum of happiness so we have got some physical materials that people can re can read and videos that people can watch now so it is a physical location now so it's a pop-up it? location so rather yeah. than renting a place permanently we have a different we kind of choose a different location every month mm. and we do a half or a full day makes event. it more fun anyway doesn't it yeah exactly so we get to visit different parts of london by doing that so That's absolutely it's been brilliant. lovely i yeah. did have a quick peek at the video that you've we got online on the on the oh, website yeah. it looks yeah. so much fun <laughs> yeah, hundreds yeah, yeah. of people singing and dancing and do, doing the courses and the absolutely the, the um, exercises that you're doing it's, it's just amazing yeah 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 no it's been a really so fun you've got journey. you've got a, a serious community now behind it. you've got thousands of people i think on your yeah. newsletters and that's right who, yeah who yeah yeah you. yeah yeah and now i'm not so involved in the day-to-day -day running of it but my mm -hmm. co-founder vicky is and so she runs it what's full vicky's full name give her a shout Vic, out uh, victoria johnson victoria johnson yeah. and, and, okay well come on to how people can. but that's just wonderful i mean it must Thank give you. you so much pleasure to to yeah. have done that yeah 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 and to be honest the, the what i was most surprised about is actually how much suffering people were going through when they came so we've had several people that said that they would have taken their life if they hadn't come to the museum which i was quite surprised about actually I'm like wow it just shows how powerful a community is uh not, a, not only that i mean sorry to interrupt not yeah. not only that yeah. But why does it take someone other than yourself or people immediately around you to tell you, come to this event and be happy? Yeah. It's just bizarre, isn't it? Yeah, that yeah, we, yeah, we, yeah. we take being happy for granted. You know, it's something that you, mm. you can't do yourself. You've got to rely on other people to, to put on a museum and make me happy. <laughs> well, yes, but the thing is, as we talked about, you know, the storytelling brain, we can get mm. very hooked on it. So if we're in a low mood, then these thoughts can become quite low and negative and they spiral to create more low mood. And then, like I shared with this psychologist, who's a very intelligent guy, people end up trying to fight their emotion because they don't know what to do with it. So you can find yourself in a very low mood state. And then the only solution that your brain comes up with is, hang on a minute. If I take my life, then this is going to go away. So it's trying to come up with solutions, but it's that language brain that I was talking to you about. This 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 brain that relates one thing to another, and it becomes like a, a you know a sensible solution to the mind. And it's only when you have a conversation or talk to someone or something else happens that sometimes you can snap out of it, mm. or just realizing uh, that these are just thoughts; they're yeah. not me. No, sure. I mean, obviously, emotions at that deep dark level are, are exactly. serious and that you know obviously yeah. a serious mental health issue when it gets to that level i'm talking about people in their day-to-day -day sort of mundane lives who, who aren't mm. haven't got mental health problems but maybe just a bit miserable with the way their life is yeah struggle to find a way to be happy yeah and and what you're setting up is is a wonderful vehicle for them to jump on mm. and participate in but it does I, I do find it odd that in today's day and age we're looking for ways not to be miserable as opposed to ways to be positively be happy. True. You see, you see yeah. what I mean? No, yeah, the, yeah. the flip side of that. Yeah, yeah, no, I do see what, see what you mean. But I also mentioned this other thing, which is called the happiness trap. So because people think of happiness as feeling good, mm. okay, it's quite great that we had this rainbow. Because I'm going to use that analogy. The oh, rainbow's gone. gone. I've mi missed it. Now, 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 now I'm really miserable. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> now you give me a very nice view. You've just got a view of a white now wall. I'm really I'm pissed seeing. off. Yeah. <laughs> um, but we actually, as human beings, we experience a rainbow of emotions. We, we experience a more happiness as a feeling is one of the many emotions we feel. So there's nobody that wakes up every day happy or can be happy all the time. It's impossible. But all the advertising, if you look at it, like the, the reason we started the Museum of Happiness, I forgot to mention, is there was a drink, a fizzy drink that was advertising drink happiness and share happiness. But they're using the word happiness so much as a form of advertising to attract people's attention. So if people believe that happiness is just a feeling 
and they can't hold on to that feeling it's very frustrating for people and so they try to fight for it and cling on to it but it's not something that you can have all the time and so it's only when you understand that actually it's about meaning and fulfillment and making a difference and doing the best you can and appreciating the what you can learn from anxiety and from sadness and frustration that whole rainbow of emotions it's about learning to accept them all and be in a sense happy with them all make peace with them all that's what the journey is all about. So happiness doesn't have to be sort of laughing hysterically all the time. <laughs> no, but it can be, as you say, appreciating mo any moment in in time in your life, mm -hmm. in your day, mm -hmm. and just accepting it and being grateful. Great, we haven't spoken much about gratefulness and journaling because yeah. I know you, I know you're quite a fan of journaling. I think I've read yes, some of your yeah. listen, to, and I'm a huge fan of journaling. I've got so Great. many journals at home. I don't even know which one to <laughs> write write in half the time. But but a lot of journals do have sections in there to say maybe at the end of the day when you're retiring for bed and you're doing some reading or whatever, what is it that you found that you can be grateful for during the course of your day? And it doesn't have to be that you've won the lottery. It could be that, you know, you've had a healthy day, you've done a good day at work or you're going into a nice warm bed or whatever it is. But they're, they're positive feelings that can make you feel good and good about yourself. Exactly. No, no. There's, a, there's a, again, and I keep mentioning the research, but some nice science on it where you get a group of people and you just get them to write down two or three things that they're grateful for every day just for a few weeks and things like their sleep improves they actually end up even exercising more their relationships improve and their levels of well-being go up as well over a long term so yeah gratitude is a really nice exercise to do and it, it counteracts what i was talking about earlier the negativity bias because you start oh yeah if i just sit and write down a few things that i'm grateful for actually the day wasn't as bad as i thought so yeah it's a really nice and then you and then your your mind starts being reshaped due to the neuroscience and you start looking for things to be grateful for so one of the things we started is the museum of happiness gratitude group on that day when that thing went viral and that's got a few thousand people now and some people every single day they just share a few things they're grateful for oh, that's it's wonderful. nice to read that yeah that is wonderful well as all regular listeners to the podcast will know uh, at this point in proceedings i ask all my guests to mention one or two of their favorite places in london and being being born and bred north north londoner <laughs> <laughs> i'm sure shamash you've got one or two places um to suggest to us yeah so the first one that comes to mind is the top of the shard actually so i went well, me and my co-founder of the museum we went up there and we have looking at the beautiful views from there <laughs> and that's when we had our one of our key ideas about the museum of happiness so it's uh -huh. nice to Nice to get to, to the top of one of the tallest buildings in Europe, I think. It, it, it's and a fun to, lift ride, elevator ride to yeah, the top yeah. there, isn't it? Yeah, it really exactly. is good. I think you need to make sure you're looking quite smart as well. You need to wear shoes and stuff, otherwise they might not let you in. Oh. It used to be like that, anyway. Yeah, I, I, I don't recall that, but I do recall it being very expensive. Oh, uh, <laughs> yeah, it's, yeah, it's yeah, exactly. To get, just yeah. to get up there. Yeah, but yeah. it is good. It it's is a good. fantastic 360-degree view of the whole of London. It's yes. amazing on a clear day. Yeah, and we can actually see it from here today, We can. We're very, we're very fortunate. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's just getting a bit cloudy now, but we still see it. Anything else? Yeah, so there's one restaurant I go to very often. It's called Dishoom. I don't know if you've heard of that one, but it's an Indian mm. restaurant. I've had so many meetings and good experiences. There's that? one in Covent Garden. Uh, there's one in uh, South Ken, you know, High Street, Kensington, and a couple of other places. How I you really recommend that. D I S H O M. It's very popular. So maybe go in the afternoon or lunchtime because it's usually a queue for dinner to dinner. Uh, and the third one is actually a new place that I discovered in North Finchley, my local high street, and uh -huh. it's called Vitality Bay. And I try to eat vegan when I can, uh -huh. and it's a new vegan restaurant there. 
and they actually have a, like an event space downstairs for people to do all sorts of different classes from everything from gong baths and mindfulness to dance Ooh, and stuff. Oh, the sound of that. And yeah, they've got really nice uh, staff there too. So I've had a few lovely meetings there recently in my local high street and I'm trying to cultivate a local community. So rather than going having to go to central London all the time, starting to cultivate friendships just, oh, just in my local cool. area a little bit more. Well, maybe so, we can do a podcast there one day in the future. Yeah, I'd love yeah. to do that. Yeah, I'd be up for that. Excellent. Well, there are three really good choices and uh, yet again 80 odd guests in three places that I don't think have been mentioned before so we're building up this wonderful compendium of places in London to go and see oh great I'd love to find out about the other ones yeah I'll have to build up uh, I've been asked to write a book about it yeah maybe maybe I'll do that well you can write books maybe you can do (laughs) places in London for dummies your London yeah exactly (laughs) (laughs) yeah I'd love that thanks a lot cheers well, I'm mindful of the time. Mm-hmm. Uh, I could sit here and talk to you for hours and hours and hours yeah, and have so much fun. fun and learn so much. Thank you. But I think now is probably a, a good time to wrap up. Um, so unless, of course, there's anything else you specifically want to mention. No, I think it's been wonderful. It's been a lovely conversation. We've yeah. covered uh, my passions of mindfulness, positive psychology and happiness and also act. So no, thank you so, for the opportunity. No, it's been an absolute pleasure i really really enjoyed it one of my one of my favorite ones so far but it covers all the topics i'm really interested yeah. and passionate about and he, and we finished with the rainbow too so finished with the rainbow and happiness and <laughs> gratitude so before we wrap up how can people find you and get in touch with you whether it be social media by email through your website or find out more about what you do oh thank you for asking that so probably my, my website's the best one but it's very hard to spell it shamash aladina <laughs> <laughs> but you can maybe type get mindful for dummies and my name will come up if you but my website is shamashaladina.com and as i said i'm usually specifically passionate about different things so the last year or two i was very passionate about self-compassion and kindfulness and i create some programs around that but for the last six to nine months i've been very passionate about a topic called act acceptance and commitment training helping people to create this more greater psychological flexibility so that's uh on my website shamashaladian.com forward slash act and they can find out more and do some online courses and things like that fascinating sorry did you mention social media social media is the same just my name yeah and for museum happiness it's the same if you just type it in google brilliant that's absolutely amazing so once again it's been a pleasure to have you on the podcast and uh look forward to spreading the word of mindfulness and happiness and act and all the other wonderful <laughs> things that you do so you. keep laughing and keep smiling and we'll, we'll speak soon no doubt thank you so much Steve. It's brilliant care. i absolutely love creating your london legacy for you and the feedback and testimonials are awesome but as it grows so it consumes more and more resources so i've joined forces with patreon a really cool place where you can show your love and support from just as little as two dollars a month as a silver londoner right up to $300 per month where you get the crown jewels. Each level of subscription opens up a host of exclusive extra goodies, events, bonus shows and sponsorship opportunities only available via via Patreon. I do hope you'll continue to support what we're doing here and I'm so grateful for whatever you feel able to give. So please head over to www.patreon.com forward slash your London legacy. That's www.patreon.com patreon.com forward slash your London legacy.